Hello, you're listening to Dave Parry from Wellmeadow and this is the SME Growth Podcast. Now we interrupt our normal routine of podcast subjects to bring you the latest Roger Martin Fag Economic Report. The December 22 report has just landed and we always like to give you uh, the summary of, of that every quarter when it comes out uh, as quickly as we can. Now, it, it may be that I'm getting a bit older, but I swear that the print on these is getting smaller and smaller every time I read them. The production quality, Roger, has gone up a lot. He's got lots of photos in amongst it all now, but the text has had to be squeezed in, and some places he's, he's even gone to three columns. So if you're struggling to read it, you're in good company. So let me read it out to you. Um, he starts, as ever, with a bit of... Uh, economic and uh, governmental education and he talks about the three roles of government and I do wonder if anybody was challenged in the pub quiz to come up with what are the three roles of government whether they'd come up with the same three in fact I googled it and came up with a few different versions but they do actually all broadly fall into this category Uh, the first one he says is to provide a stable legal and social environment I can get that second one is to provide all the public necessities, social necessities such as education and infrastructure and healthcare and defence of the realm and, and policing and all of that sort of thing. And the third one, from a, an economics point of view, typically for Roger, is to ensure that monopolistic market structures are regulated. And you can sort of understand that, that in a capitalist economy, it, it doesn't always work, it can't run amok, and so therefore you do need some regulation. So it comes on to talk about the fact that then with the redistribution role of the government, that 52% of the UK population are in some way or another receiving government benefits. That's the, the role of this transfer of wealth uh, from those that are better off to less so. Now, 52% sounds really high. I'm sure you wouldn't have guessed that in your pub quiz. But if you strip out the pensioners, which is a large part of them, that's still 30% of the population. And actually, a significant part of that 30% Uh, are working people, just working at a level of wage that they still receive universal credit. Um, So he talks about a few myths uh, that people have about government in relation to this. And he talks about the fact that lots of people believe that the creation of income flows is the job of government. Uh, But it isn't, unless you're China. That's the job of business. And he said that the main thing that governments can do is to avoid being a negative. There can be a disincentive Uh, to growth and investment and that's by introducing political uncertainty so we've had a little bit of that this autumn but we've also had it uh, really over the last six years or so uh, ever since the referendum uh, around our relationship with the eu Uh, it talks uh, going on to talk about other myths this one is picking up on the theory that liz truss expanded on in hers and Kwarteng's budget back in late September. And I'm reminded that the last time I was reading this out, she just they just announced that, uh, that budget. But the theory that lowering taxation uh, can increase long-run growth. Now, it comes back to this a few points, and it's a bit out of order, so bear with me, but uh, I'll include bits where we come back to it. But the first example is on corporation tax, and he points out that even though we have lower corporation tax rates than other countries in the EU, our investment levels are the lowest. And we'll come back to that comparison in a moment. He also talks about the super deduction that was implemented uh, earlier this year, uh, where businesses get to claim tax back on £1.25 for every pound they spend. And that whilst it's had an impact, it's been reasonably marginal. So he points out that really long-term economic growth can only be achieved if you invest in all the right things and continually Uh, such as education and training and research and development. But it has to be done on a large scale. 
And that's really where the role of government comes in to increase the wealth of a nation. So that's around corporation taxes. A personal tax he picks up on as well, because he says that there's, an, there's also a view around personal tax, very much uh, Truss's theory, that if you can reduce personal tax, uh, then people uh, will maybe uh, will you grow more. But if you increase personal tax, then people will work less and work shorter hours. Uh, and similarly, it's a paradox he is pointing out that if you actually reduce income tax on higher earners, you get the opposite effect because then people can live fairly comfortably on the same wages they were before and maybe even to the point of retiring. And over the last nine months, 600,000 55 to 60-year-olds have indeed retired early because they can afford to do so. So you will only exacerbate, exacerbate that effect. Uh, now, he does point out that the marginal tax rate does have an effect on whether that's a disincentive to work or not. But the real um, measure that matters is the average tax rate. And if we're working for most of the year just to pay our taxes, then that, that definitely uh, has an impact on our appetite for work. Um, the other myth that he picks up on is that around benefits and the fact that uh, some people think that if you have very generous welfare benefits, then it's a disincentive to work. Now, there's a large study done on this. It's obviously an interesting topic. But 19,000 people took part in this study or were studied across 18 European countries, including the UK. And it supported the view that there is no such link, that higher or more generous benefits levels don't act as a disincentive to work. And it, it sort of goes to show that work is a bit more than just obtaining an income. And obviously, it's a large part of it. But also, there's a, a very strong drive for the social impacts of work and that as social humans, uh, we're, we all just need that as part of our lives, that sense of purpose. Uh, now, he talked about trickle-down econ economics. We've all heard that before, uh, certainly recently in the, in the September early first budget. Uh, there was another study done uh, this year across 18 different countries and looking at their tax policies between 1965 and 2015. And it found very, very little or no evidence at all that trickle-down economics works. So if you uh, allow more wealthy people to keep more of their income through lower taxes, then they'll spend it on things that people lower down the income scale can benefit from. There is no evidence to suggest that. Uh, and the other myth which he picks up on and shows some research on here is whether the government that we have of the day has made any impact on our long-term growth rates. And actually since 1950 to 2008, no matter which colour of government uh, was in power, there's been no difference to our long-term growth rate. Despite the fact that people think that during the Thatcher government of the 80s uh, and early 90s that we did have a longer-run growth rate, we didn't, but it changed the mix of the growth and it moved away from heavier industries and into services. So if you were in services, you would have seen what you thought was higher growth, but it wasn't across the whole country. Now, there's a section of his newsletter this month, this quarter, on the money illusion, and Roger talked a lot about that in our talk when we invited him to Shrewsbury last month, and we videoed that. So I'd encourage you to go and have a look at that video of him talking, because he explains that so much better in his own words than I would ever do him justice if I read out here. But the point of the money illusion is that we don't properly take into account inflation. And just to give you one example of how stark that is. If you go back to 2010, then our GDP has grown in nominal terms since then by 24%, but in real terms, just 6%. And yet we tend to value things like our pay rises and house price inflation and the cost of things by their nominal value, how many pounds they are. We don't tend to automatically adjust for inflation in our head. And for a long time, we've had very low inflation, so that's understandable. But as we all know, that's changed a lot now. Um, there's a graph on the bottom of page two that I'm going to come back to because some of the graphs this month are a bit 
out of sync. Uh, now, he talked about uncertainty back on page one, remember? And he comes back to that uh, on page three, where he talks about the referendum back in 2016 having created a lot of uncertainty and links that to the flatlining of investment spend. So now, as a result of that below growth spend or flatlining spend or investment, that is now at a level 40% below what it would have been if we'd have retained the pre-2016 growth rates. So because of that much, much lower investment spend, much lower than has happened in other countries, consequently our productivity has dropped and now our productivity is estimated to be growing only half of 1% per year. Add to that the fact that the number of workers in our workforce is growing by half of 1%, but only half. Half a percent more workers, half a percent more productivity leads to 1%. That's the real growth rate, the 1%. And so the idea of aiming for 2.5%, as we heard talked about back in September, would either need a lot more immigration to get more workers, or it would need investment levels from businesses significantly higher to quadruple our productivity growth rate. And there's just no sign of that happening at the moment. Uh, it talks about debt and our total debt now as a country is about 96% uh, after all the extra costs of both the crash and then COVID. But the real thing that matters is the interest payable on the debt. And there's kind of a magic level of about 10% of your GDP as a country. If that's taken up with interest payments, then it starts to get investors nervous. And you enter this thing called the doom loop, where once you're above 10%, investors demand a higher return and charge more, expect more higher interest, which only makes the situation worse. So you enter into the sort of death spiral. So that happened uh, once before back in the late 80s when there was a very expansionary budget and the uh, interest spending as a percentage of GDP went above 10%. That hasn't happened again since until this September when the uh, Kuateng Trust budget spiked it up at 12% briefly um, <laughs> before it was brought back down again. Now it's hobbling around about... Uh, 8%. So he talks about investment spending uh, generally, and he refers back to that graph I told you about on uh, on page two, which shows that the UK is at the bottom of the European League on the amount that businesses invest, or as a country, how much we invest in productivity and improving things. So we're at 17% here in the UK. It's the lowest one in the EU. The average is 23%. Norway invests 25%, and its capital gains tax is 35%, so higher than the UK's. Denmark has an even higher capital gains tax rate of 42% and still invests 23% of its GDP. So the UK is, a, is and we've often talked about this, it's, it's a significant outlier in the amount of investment that we have, which is linked to the poor productivity that we have. And part of the problem is that in the UK, we misjudge whether things like buying houses or buying shares is investment. And he points out that when you buy a house, there's 1.2 million houses changing hands every year. Unless it's a new house, that's not investment. And there's about 200,000 new houses built every year. So out of the 1.2 million, there's a million houses that just change hands. So buying property isn't investment at a country level. It may be for you, but it's only because someone else sold it. And the same with shares. If you invest in shares, then unless that's a new issue share in a growing company or a startup, then it's just changing hands. So that doesn't increase investment at all. And there's this fear that if, as a country, we were to increase the capital gains tax, that it would re reduce the amount of investment put into shares. And yet most people buying shares are just buying them off somebody else. So it would have no impact at all. Um, now, every now and again, Roger 
pops in a little fact which is interesting, uh, just one of these rules of thumb to remember. And one here that I picked up on is that for every 1% fall in the value of sterling against the dollar, it boosts the profits of the FTSE companies by the same, by 1%. Uh, and since uh, sterling has dropped by 14% since January, there's going to be record profits. Now, the reason for that is twofold. Partly it's because uh, we can export more competitively uh, as the pound reduces in value. But the bigger impact actually is that for FTSE 100 companies the majority of their income and profits is from overseas and mostly denominated in dollars so those dollar inflows are worth more in pounds when the pound weakens now following on from that he then blames the bonus culture that we have in the UK for causing a lot of our problems because uh, chief execs and uh, boards generally will get more in bonuses sometimes just as an accident of the exchange rate changing, which of course they've got no control over, but it boosts their profits. But he expands on that theme and he talks about the fact that for smaller businesses, they will often borrow money off friends and family and invest lots of time. And they will generally as a business invest in technology and people and equipment and so on. And they will increase their productivity uh, and it will increase wealth and that's proper investment. But they get to a point where that small business maybe flatlines in its growth and therefore is looking for a new owner. And if that new owner happens to be a large corporate or a private equity house, then they have a very different view to investing. They probably take a shorter term view because they're trying to produce a return uh, quicker than the startup would have done. So that's what starts to kill off productivity as well. So it's partly our, our view as a country on what investment really is, partly because the short termism as, as companies get larger. So that's his uh, economics lesson. If we look at the global outlook now and some of his forecasts, uh, it reminds us again that inflation, which uh, last month was pegged at 11%, it's probably only 20% due to the current supply chain problems and more like 80% due to just too much money chasing too few products. And he's told us in previous newsletters that there's around $18 trillion of excess cash in the system uh, because of all the support the governments gave to their populations through, through the COVID period. And as he points out, it's almost like another China has landed on the planet in terms of uh, the cash going around, but it doesn't produce any goods or services. So that has produced this huge inflation. And remember, inflation is the difference between the money supply and the growth. And through COVID, that extra money was about 14%. That's the amount of money supply increase. So with growth during that period, only 6%, we were nailed on to have inflation of the difference, 14 minus 6, about 8, 8, 9%. Uh, it's a bit higher than that because added on top of that, is the oil price effect as a result of Putin's invasion. But he says things are stabilising and by the end of next year, global inflation will be back down to 3 to 5% or so and GDP will, as a global average, be about 1% to 2%, a bit higher in China. Um, he made the point when he came to talk to us as well, which is, is interesting if you're running a business, is that you've probably had a reasonably good year, 18 months or so post-COVID, as, as there has been the correction from the dip before. And so be very careful when you're planning your budgets for 2023 not to assume some straight line numbers from 2022. You should really, unless you're a startup, you should really ignore the data from this year and go back to some pre-COVID growth trends to see see how you're doing and therefore how you'll do for, for 23 and maybe even 24. He predicts a reasonably mild recession, but a recession nonetheless uh, coming up. But by the end of next year, things will get back in balance and 24, 2024, we'll see those growth levels return again. There's a few graphs then that reinforce some of the points you made earlier. Gives a quick summary of the Sunak Hunt budget, which just brought things back down again. 
uh, from the sort of heady heights of those few weeks where things were going a bit crazy. Forecast, as I say, the shallow uh, recession. Talks again about the zombie businesses, and he's used this theme before. Highly leveraged businesses that have been kept afloat during COVID by cheap loans and government support, but they're now going to start to fail in record numbers. So he's predicting record insolvencies and merger and acquisition activity, which will present for those companies that survive a significant opportunity either from market share freed up from those companies failing or perhaps more importantly the release of people that have been locked up in those businesses and lots of companies are experiencing recruitment shortages at the moment and on the back of that because those people will be moving from zombie businesses as he calls them to other businesses where they can be more productively used he expects that actually that growth rate we talked about earlier being one percent remember the half plus the half might actually go up a bit above that because our the type of work people are doing as they move companies might increase. So he forecasts that GDP growth may even go up to 1.8%. So a bit of positive positive news out of all of that. Uh, we talked earlier about the money illusion. Real wages are currently falling by 2.3% a year, and the OBR is predicting another 7% fall over the next two years. And he says if real incomes are going to fall by 7%, then house prices will probably do the same. But remember, that's real house prices. It could well be that there's no change at all in their nominal price. The average price for a house may stay about the same. But with inflation going up by then by about, say, 7%, uh, it will be a, a real fall in those prices. Equity markets, the multiples, the price equity earnings multiple has fallen uh, to now what they were like before COVID as demand is growing much more slowly than it was in that peak. Uh, so the real value of share for portfolios is likely to fall a bit over the next 18 months or so. Uh, bond deals, he talks about the fact that the trust budget debacle cost us about £27 billion, pounds, uh, about £9 billion because the interest rate spike at the time and a further 18 billion because of the uh, rescue of the pension funds that had to be done remember when that all went crazy and he's got a graph here showing that uh, we don't often get a weather section in roger's report it's not quite a weather forecast but a weather section nonetheless he points out that gas and energy is going to be a major factor this winter and across the eu germany's got two and a half months supply its reservoirs are full france has got four months supply uk doesn't have any reservoirs so we've got five days supply so the uk in particular is going to be very susceptible if there's a cold winter but at the moment, while it's reasonably mildish, we'll and see what the rest goes like, uh, then the gas price is actually falling. But if it uh, goes cold and stays cold, then that might well reverse and, and we'll have big problems here in the UK especially. Uh, interest rates... Uh, interest rates are normally about 2.5% higher than the growth rate of a country, the real growth rate. And so if we've talked about maybe growth getting up to 1.5%, 1.8%, then interest rates should settle down to about 4% over the next few years. Um, so we can calculate mortgage rates from that. Uh, on the last page, he talks about the fact that he's, he's got um, a Christmas list, which is very sweet, uh, but it's all very economic-y stuff. He, he wants us to stop believing the USA will do a trade deal with us, stop the creation of the UK kite mark and uh, extra regulation being forced on the UK chemicals industry, uh, and accept that we are only 2.6% of the global economy. You know, we perhaps get ideas above our station. Uh, and in summary... He talks about the fact that because of our demographics, not uncommon with some other countries in terms of the ageing population, but remember we've got this dip of the 18 to 25-year-olds as well, which is going to really impact our workforce. But because of that, we've got to invest more in AI and back, back office automation and training and development of people, just ways of attracting and retaining quality employees and getting more productivity. Innovate or die 
is his rallying cry. Uh, so forecast for 2023 then. Here we go. If it's a mild winter, he says that GDP growth will either be zero or minus one and a half. If it's a cold winter, it could go down to minus two and a half. But he has talked about that correcting then in 2024. Uh, earnings growth would be about 6% next year, but inflation at 5%. Back to that money illusion thing again. House price growth in nominal terms, about zero. Uh, base rate, 3.75%, coming down a bit from what we just talked about. But that means fixed rate mortgages will be about 5.5%. That's based on the longer term bond yields. Unemployment, 4.3%, which is about 500,000 more unemployed. But we would still meet the definition of full employment at that level. And exchange rates of about $1.22 and €1.18. Uh, to the pound. So that's him. There he is, seven page of tightly packed, smaller than ever print, lots of graphs. Thank you, Roger, for making me squint at all of that. That's the December 22 Roger Martin Fag economic report. We'll have another one, no doubt, here, end of February, March time. We'll bring that to you as well. Uh, and next week, we'll, we'll be returning to our normal routine uh, of podcasts. So please come and join us again for that. Please subscribe to our podcasts wherever you see them. And if you've got business colleagues you think might be interested, please forward this link on so they can see it as well. And in the meantime, good luck with your business. Thanks. <laughs>